Amen. You can be seated. Last week we opened with a quote from, <clears throat> excuse me, from Ray Ortland's book, The Gospel. I want us to start there again, ultimately because it provides for us a framework of where we're at now in our healthy church series. Not not so much in in being a healthy church, but continuing to grow in health, getting healthier all the time. Ortland writes this: It is not enough for us to ask, "Does our church teach gospel doctrine?" It's an important question, but it's not enough to ask that. We must also ask, is our church culture clearly aligned with that gospel doctrine? The gospel gives us more than a place to stand. It also leads us into a path to follow. And then he goes on to say just a little bit later, gospel culture is just as sacred as gospel doctrine, and it must be carefully nurtured and preserved in our churches. There's a reality that some churches are all about doctrine, all about knowledge, all about making sure you know. And then some churches are all about, hey, what's it look like? How are we acting? What are we doing? The the idea here is that in some way, both of these things are tied together, and they are imperative. You can't get rid of one and, and have the other and be healthy. And so we pose these questions to ourselves. We pose these questions about ourselves. And, and, and I would encourage you, if you're here and this is not your church, ask these questions of your church. Is your church culture aligned with gospel doctrine? Is there more than just a teaching of knowledge? Certainly, I hope the teaching of knowledge is there. If it's not, then, then you need to ask something about it. But, but is there more? Is the church culture in which you reside in aligned with that gospel doctrine? Does it bear the marks of the work of God through the gospel? Can you look around? Can you look at the lives of the people that that you know in your church? Is there a gospel culture at work? Is, Is the gospel being expressed in the life of the church? If there is, wherever it is, you should be thanking God. It is a miracle. It's a miracle of God that, that, that His gospel message, that His power and the provision He's made for us through the gospel would change any of us and, and cause us to act in any way that honors Him, that exhibits His qualities and His traits. But if it isn't, and the truth is, is I don't think there's a church that exists, even this one, as much as I love this one, there isn't a church that exists, I believe, that, that can't find places where a gospel culture is lacking. So we should be asking ourselves a follow-up question. What can I do to change that? What can I do? Not, not, not what's the list I can make for the pastor to get all these things straightened out. Not, not what I can make a list for all the people that, that are supposed to be doing things. No, what can you do? Starting with you. What can you do among the people of God to to, to, to exhibit and to uh, 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 propel a gospel culture among God's people? Really, to answer that question, to answer those questions, we need to know how to answer those questions. We need to know how to define a gospel culture. We need to know what we're looking for. And that's what we really began looking at last week in 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be there again this week. If you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. Let me just take a second to say this. Today, as we work through this, even last week as we work through it, there's this reality that it would be an easy thing just to to say these are all the things we should be doing. 
let me let me encourage you. Let me, as I call you to this. First off, this is for Christians. If you have never trusted Christ, this is not for you. I'm going to call you to believe. Hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and then act in alignment with the gospel. But if you are a Christian, there's going to be some things today that, that maybe are said that are, that are going to be offensive to you. They're going to challenge you, that maybe even make you feel guilty. I, I don't want to give you a law to live by. I want you to look at your life honestly and seriously in light of the teaching of Scripture and ask why I'm not doing this. Why is this not evident in my life? What about the gospel am I not believing? What about the doctrine of the gospel? Do I not believe fully enough that I would see it exhibited, see it enacted, see it propelling me to action? We'll Really, the theme of this, the idea behind this, is, is not a call to action as much as it is a call to believing and then to action. So please don't hear me giving you a law. But I do want you to hear, in light of the gospel, in light of the work of God through Jesus Christ on the cross, what we are called to as Christians, what a gospel culture should look like. And so we're going we're gonna to begin again in 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll read... One, beginning in verse 1, just to get some review, just to, just to see where Peter is coming from. We'll focus most heavily on verses 7 through 11. Read with me if you would. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time is past. Or, I'm sorry, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. I, I don't know if you guys are getting this, but I don't think Peter's painting those actions in a positive light, right? You, you see that. This is things that are past, things that used to be. You used to be a part of them no longer. This is a flood of debauchery. And they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So we're going to stop right there and just pick up a couple of the, the two traits that we pointed out last week from that passage, the two gospel culture traits that we pointed out. We don't have time to explain them. We just don't have time for that. But, but it is first defined by a Christ-like attitude. Peter says, because Jesus suffered, put on, arm yourself, put on, equip yourself with the mind of Christ. Think like he does, perceive like he does, adopt a worldview like he does. He suffered for you, now follow him and think like him. Measure things, think of things, uh, perceive things from his perspective. The second thing Peter calls us to in that, the second trait of a gospel culture, is to be devoted to a pursuit of Christ-like priorities. The, 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 taking the mind of Christ, adopting and putting on the mind of Christ, thinking of, of things the way Christ does, and then acting like Christ does. 
giving yourself fully to the will of God, being so concerned, prioritizing so fully His will that we take all of our energy, all of our resources, our time, our energy, our money, our, even beyond that, our, our reputations, our comfort, our security, maybe, probably not likely, but maybe even your safety. We live in a place where we don't have to worry about getting our heads cut off. We, we live in a passive-aggressive kind of kind of persecution, right? I mean, it's, it's all, you're welcome, you're welcome, you're welcome, but don't talk about Jesus. We love Christians here, but as long as you keep that to yourself. It's a passive-aggressive. So, so maybe it's not your safety, but it, but it could be your safety. Everything about what you have been given in this life, directing it to the pursuit of the will of God. That's what Jesus did. That's, that's what he set for us, and now that's what Peter calls us to. So do you think, do you think your church, especially if it's this church, do you, do you think your church exhibits a mind like Christ? Have you put on his mind? Have you armed yourself with his mind? Do you think that we are singularly focused? Do you think this church, do you think your church is singularly focused on seeing the will of God done? No matter what the cost. Are you? The truth is we won't ever be this as a church fully until every one of our members adopts this. Are you singularly focused to see the will of God done. That are the, that, that's two major traits of a gospel culture that we think like Jesus and we act like Jesus and we, we, we prioritize like Jesus. And so we asked at the end of the message last week, what do you need to change to, 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 change, to, to make that true about yourself? What do you need to do? And now today we pick up in verse 7 with those questions looming, those traits looming in our mind. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. That's doctrine. Do you believe it? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything, in order that in everything 
God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That is His will. His will is not for us to have big retirement accounts and fancy houses and cars that talk to us. His will is that He is glorified in Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. My, my hope is, is that as that amen is read, it resounds in your heart. The end of all things is near. Why? My family's at the lake. Why am I here? Why am I? I don't have time for this. I'm done. Maybe next week. Shocking, isn't it? What'd you feel? You know why I'm here? You know what this is about? This isn't about days at the lake. To him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Love one another earnestly. Do you believe that the end of all things is near? Do you believe that any moment he could return and people are going to die and they're going to go to hell and they're going to suffer forever? Do you believe that the end is near? That along the way your brothers and sisters are suffering? Love one another earnestly. Do you believe that the end of all things is near? You see, this is the doctrine. And so instead of trying to find time, more time, Say it like that. Instead of trying to find more time for yourself that you would long to be together in one another's homes, loving one another, spending time together, that the world might see a body in action, that they might see His glory in our love for one another. Do you believe that the end of all things is near such that it's time to set aside the pursuits of the flesh and serve the brothers and sisters in Christ in the way that I've been gifted? 
See, this is all rooted in what we believe. I know that in some way that's just a gimmicky stunt. Many of you may have even figured out what I was doing. Well, my hope is, is that it resounds in your heart as we look at these points most closely. You see, if we're going to see a gospel culture residing in our church, we are going to have to prioritize the will of God. And the way we do that is by looking at what Peter has called us to, because the end of all things is near. He gave us four traits, four priorities to give ourselves to. Man, that had me sick to my stomach knowing that I was going to do that. Just going to say, I'm shaking now. You can't tell anybody in second service that's coming. Four traits, four priorities he calls us to. A gospel culture prioritizes prayer. Verse 7, he says, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. You know, here's, here, here, we got we to we gotta deal with this. We, we have to deal with this. You hear that. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is, is, is near. You hear that. And I mean, that's lunatic talk, right? I mean, that's like the putting on the sandwich boards and going downtown and, and, and putting on stuff. To, uh, you know, hey, the end is coming. It's, the, it's the, the, what's that kid's story, the henny penny thing where the sky is falling. You know, that's lunatic speak. But he says, he's like, no, it's not about being a lunatic. Because of the gospel, because of the gospel, you can be self-controlled and sober-minded. We don't have to run off half-cocked. We don't have to spend all our, oh, well, it could end tomorrow, so I better get everything done. i got to get my bucket list in order so I know what I'm going to do before he shows up. No. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayer. This isn't the first mention of prayer. Peter introduced the thread of prayer back in chapter 3. As he wrote to husbands and called them to live with their wives in a, in a merciful and understanding way. So that your prayers won't be hindered. And then later in chapter 3, he actually commends us and encourages us that God hears prayer. He hears it. He listens to our prayers. But, but Peter, he's, he's saying, hey, do this. Hey, look at it. The end is coming, so Pray. But be self-controlled and sober-minded so that you don't get in the way of your prayer. It, it amazes me as I look at this verse, though, Peter isn't, he's, not, he's just assuming we pray. It's not like he's giving us instruction to pray. He's not saying pray. He's like assuming you're already doing it. He's, he's just assuming that that's a natural part of your life. Bible, the theologians of, that have studied Scripture throughout the ages, they've they picked up on this. Matthew Henry writes, you may as soon find a living man that does not breathe as a living Christian that does not pray. If prayerless, then graceless. When's the last time you didn't breathe? Oh, about two seconds ago when I took my last breath. When's the last time you set 
and prayed. J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop, wrote, to be prayerless is to be without God. Without Christ, without grace, without hope, and without heaven. It is to be in the road to hell. Now, can you wonder that I asked the question, do you pray? It's powerful. Peter just assumes it of, of believers. He, he's assuming that, oh, we can get in the way, but, but he's assuming we're just praying. Do we pray? Is the culture of our church marked by prayer? Not just in public services. I mean, yeah, we've already prayed like three times this morning. We'll pray about two or three more before the day is over. But in the natural flow of our lives together, are we praying? Now, I have to be, I have to own a piece of this. I have to be honest in this. I've been asked, and I don't remember when it was or even who it was. It's been some time ago. What are you going to do to to encourage or uh, establish a, a, a life of prayer in the church? And, and I recognize I and the other pastors, we have a responsibility to this. I was called to account on this last just this last week at a, at a prayer conference, at a conference about prayer and the mission. Gary Frost was there speaking. And in a moment he says, Speaking of prayer and, your, and the church, he says the church is not going to go where the, where the pastor hasn't already been. I'll own this. I, I'm still growing in my prayer life. I, I'm a doer. I, I do. And, I, and so it's very unnatural for me to sit down and, and pray, but I am growing. And in the last year and a half, two years, man, my prayer life has been taking off as I've studied it and, and thought on it and looked at it and been challenged by the Scripture in it. But there's a reality here. Peter is not writing to the leaders of the church to teach people how to pray. He's writing to the church. He's writing to believers. When you pray, well, wait a minute, I, I guess i got to get praying before I can hinder my prayers without for not being self-controlled. Is that the mark? And it's not just about whether or not we're praying, but, but what is it that, that the content of our prayer is made up by? I mean, what are we praying for? Are we praying for God's name to be glorified? Are we praying that, that His will would be done and that His kingdom would come? Are those the thing we're, we're praying for? Are we praying as we pray for our daily needs and as we pray for forgiveness and as we pray for, for Him to protect us from spiritual warfare, as we, as we pray for our lives, are we praying in such a way that it's because we long for His glory? What's the content of the prayers that you're offering up? Are they shaped by a Christ-like mind? And a Christ-like priority. It isn't enough just to, to pray. I 
James says that we have and we don't. We, we don't have because we don't ask and we don't receive when we ask because when we ask, we ask so that we can spend it on our passions. It's not enough just to ask. What are you praying for? Brothers and sisters, the end of all things is at hand. Be sober-minded and self-controlled that your prayers will not be hindered. God longs for you to pray Prayers that move him to action, that accomplish his will, that, that, that produce miracles and are answered in the affirmative. He longs for you to do that. What are we praying? A gospel culture prioritizes prayer. A, a gospel culture prioritizes loving one another earnestly. Now, this isn't the first mention of love in Peter's letter. We have hit it since really the beginning or the end of chapter 1. We've seen him over and over talk, talk to us and tell us to love one another. There's really this idea. So Jesus says to love your enemy, right? He's basically love your neighbor as yourself. And, and, and what, he's, what Peter's saying is, is yeah, that's, that's right. And there is a particular love that you're supposed to be giving to the brothers, to the brothers and sisters in Christ, to, to the members of the church. He's saying that there should be a priority of love among brothers and sisters in Christ. The end is all is at hand. The end is near, so love one another earnestly. This, this is time. The time that you've given to partying and drinking and, 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 and floods of debauchery, that time has passed. Now it's time to love one another. This is a sacrificial and, and beneficial action for one another's good. He's not calling us to feel good about it. He's not this fluffy emotion of love that, that our world would call love. That's not what he's calling. He's calling us to a sacrificial and beneficial action on the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ to the glory of God. And John, he tells us this. He, he, he picks up on this as well. By this we know love. This is 1 John 3.16. That He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. For the brothers. When's the last time you're laying your life down for someone in the family of God? And it shouldn't surprise us that Peter and John, these two lead apostles, get this. it's not surprising that they think this way because this is exactly what Jesus taught the church. John 15, 12, in Jesus' words, this is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. That one another statement is the church. Should we quit loving the world? No. And I'm speaking about the people of the world. Should we quit loving our enemies? No. Should we quit loving our neighbors? No. Absolutely love them. And Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. There should be a priority to loving the church, laying our lives down for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Is your life, and thereby our church's life, marked by this kind of love? Number three, he calls us to a gospel culture prioritizing hospitality without complaint, without grumbling. 
the, this carries on with the idea of love. The reality is, is that this isn't just about loving our brothers. Certainly, we should do that. Loving our brothers and sisters, loving one another as we have been loved. This is a, a word that, that really uh, interpreted, it, it, it says to love the stranger. Love people you don't know. But because he's talking in the context of things about, about show hospitality to one another, we recognize that there's still an emphasis, there's still a perspective that we're prioritizing brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, it's very easy to come in, in even into a church like this, a church that, that is about 150 of us all together if everybody decides to show up. A church even like this, it's easy to be in your own little circle and love those who, who you know and not be concerned about the people who you don't know. Bigger than that, broader than that, it's really easy to love one another in this church and look across town and say they don't look like us, they don't smell like us, they don't baptize like us. I don't think I need to love them like us. Are they believers in Jesus Christ? Are they followers of the Savior that God sent? But they have a different view on, you name it. If they are believing in the essentials of salvation, love the stranger. Make room for them. Practically speaking, in this culture, this would have been practiced in, in a few different ways, but especially like, so they didn't have Hiltons and Marriott's at every exit of the highway there, right? It's not like they could pull off the interstate and just pick, you know, get a hotel and, oh, well, I got my points, this, so this one's free, I'll, I'll just stay there. It was, it was about opening your home and, and allowing the brothers and sisters who are traveling to have a place to stay, opening up their home and, and serving them and giving, you know, feeding them and, and, and loving on them, regardless of what they had to pay you back, regardless if you knew them or not. But them being able to know that there were brothers and sisters that were for them to be encouraged in their travel. In our context, it may look a little different than that because most people feel weird about calling you up and staying at your house. Maybe I'm going to test it and just see what happens. Now, you know me, so that wouldn't work. But the thing is, is that maybe we're not staying in one another's homes, but just think about how it works in our context and our culture. Certainly opening, being willing to open up one another's home and spend time together. What does that say to a, to a world that is so independent and so, so loosely connected? I mean, the biggest and greatest connections that our world has is through social media, and that's not enough. People are lonely, and they're hurting. And, and what would it say to them if a, if a people were so serious about the love of God that they opened up their homes for one another? that they spent time together, that they turned off the television and, and quit going to the movie theaters and just got together and loved on one another. What would that say? And what would it say if, if, if a person walks in here and they just were made to feel at home? I mean, this is, this is an area we have grown in. So, so don't let me challenge you too deeply on this, but, but the reality is that we can always grow further. 
It's very easy for us to rely on the person setting up coffee and, and bagels and people greeting at the door. There shouldn't be, shouldn't be strangers sitting in this room who, who are sitting alone before the service. They should be overwhelmed. I'd rather people walk away and say they're too friendly. They're weird. I don't, man, I'm just not into that close stuff. That No, okay. But that's, that's who we are because that's what we're called to. We're going to love one another. We're going to love the stranger. How loudly would that speak in a world that is broken and relationships are shattered? To be so concerned that we made room. Are we marked with, a, with an attitude of hospitality? Willingly? Do we believe so fully in the gospel doctrine that we aren't just loosely connected, but that we are brothers and sisters in Christ? And that whether I've met you before or you've met me before, we are bound together for eternity? Do, do you believe that? That's what this letter's teaching us. We have been given an inheritance. And there's a day that we're going to walk into salvation and we're going to be together with our God forever. You're not getting rid of me. You're not getting rid of any of the people in this room. Forever. Unless they're rejecting Jesus. But the fourth priority he calls us to these Christ-like priorities. A gospel culture prioritizes gracious service. Gracious service. He's calling us to love one another, past our faults, past our flaws, past our indiscretions, love one another, offer hospitality, and in the way that you have been gifted. And the, root, the, the, the Greek for that is, is charisma. It's the same word that talks about grace. In the way that you have been graced by God. How have you been graced by God? How have you received? How, Paul talks about this as, as His grace is lavished upon us. It's, it's luxuriously bestowed upon us without, without any kind of holding back. He has given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Peter, in his second letter, he says that you have been given everything that you need for life and godliness. How has God graced you? How is that waterfall of grace flowing over you? Turn around and grace somebody else with it. See, the point is, is that you receive that grace, not simply for you. But to experience that grace most fully, you must turn around and put it on somebody else. Like punch him in the face with grace. That's good stuff. And, and people will be like, yeah, give me some more of that. I like that. That's actually enjoyable. Bestow that grace on me some more. But I have to admit, this is the place that I'm most concerned for our church. And maybe it's because this is where I see it 
bestowed most heavily. This is, a, this is a risky, what I'm about to say, because it's real life. It's like not something that happened a year ago. It was just days and weeks ago. Every, every year, we established this last year because we were struggling getting people to serve in our church, to serve one another. So we established our covenant renewal to remind one another what we covenant to. And a ministry... Uh, a fair mobilization is what we're calling it now, a, a, a mobilization of, of people who are serving. We instituted it because we struggled getting people to do something. Because we're, we're, we're calling, we're giving opportunity, but many people are just sitting. And, and just one example of that, just one. We're we preparing for it, and, and we have been calling for volunteers in kids' way. And because of the way... We got kids. And Kids Way is not about just getting rid of kids. Kids Way is the most missional opportunity we have together for the next generation of our families. We don't, we don't, take, we, we don't take the place of the parents in this. The parents still have primary responsibility, but as brothers and sisters in Christ, we stand together to serve the mission to bring glory to God by telling our kids about the gospel. This is imperative. We love it so much. We're so devoted to it as leaders and pastors in your church that we started a second service for it. Not because we needed room in the sanctuary, but because we wanted to do it to the best of our ability. We wanted to get people who are gifted, who have been graced with God's Word, and who can turn around and grace your kids with God's Word. We wanted to be able to have people who have been graced with God's willingness to serve and His power to serve. And so, so, so we, we provide a nursery to love on and pray over and care for your children. And instead of having people knock down my door about trying to find a place to serve in kids' way, it's, it's complaints and resistance. We should be ashamed. Because not only are we not serving one another well in that, we are not loving one another well in that. It's not just kids' way. And it's really not just about the event of church on Sunday morning. You know why I want to put coffees and bagels out? Not because I think we need them to make people feel welcome. We should be doing that without them. But it gives a person an opportunity to begin to serve and see that it's actually good to take your eyes off yourself and to quit coming to church to be served, to quit adopting this Walmart consumer mentality. I'm going to take what I can get. I'm going to go home and I'm going to use it for myself. But that you come without the serve us mentality, but with the service mentality. It's good to do that. It's right to do that. And when we believe what the gospel says, we'll do that. So as I look at where our church is strong and where our church is weak, I must ask, what are we not believing about the gospel? You see, because that's the truth. It's, again, what it all comes down to. 
what are you, what are you doing about establishing a gospel culture in your church? What do you need to be doing to establish a gospel culture in your church? But remember what I called you to at the beginning. What do you need to be believing? What about the gospel? Have you not believed fully yet that your life isn't fully given to the mind of Christ and the priorities of Christ? A gospel culture is not shaped in your church, in our church. A gospel culture is not shaped in our church first by what we do, but what you believe then do. What are you not believing about the gospel? This isn't about law. It's about faith. Faith is the very thing you exercise to get up and come to church this morning that there would be something here for you. Faith is the very thing you exercise when you sat down in that chair and believed it would hold you. See, when you believe something, it moves you to action. Where the gospel culture is lacking in this church is in part fallen leaders, not fully believing the gospel. I own that. I, I will own that until Jesus comes back, I am trusting in his grace. I read a verse earlier this week that, that Solomon, as he was praying for wisdom, he's like, I feel like a kid running around not knowing what to do. Here you go. But it's not all mine to hold. If we're going to see a gospel culture established in this church in fullness, and there's good things about this church, don't hear this. It's just beating you down. There are good things about this church, but there are weaknesses because we are not fully believing the gospel. What do you need to believe? As you believe, that's where the fruit is going to come, and that's where the glory of God is going to overflow and overwhelm and overpower this church. Let's pray.